Well, let's, uh, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for this time in your word. We're grateful um, for the pleasant place to be. Build our lives as you would have them and help us understand. In your son's name, amen. Uh, I was observing some uh, chatter on the interwebs. A bunch of Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholics, and Protestants were arguing about who's in charge here. And um, none of them, tragically, seemed to be arguing on the basis of the power of the gospel. It was all which institution had been around the longest, which one had the keys of the kingdom, which had the apostolic succession, which had whatever, whatever, whatever. And so I was inclined to comment, and them did not, but kept out of the fray. Um, but it made me think about how little sometimes the church understands what makes the church. We want to have unity in the faith with everybody who runs around with their hands in the air waving them going, oh my gosh, the non-Christians don't believe we're the church because we're not unified. And so they come up with all sorts of silly unification paths, either institutional or by stripping all the doctrines of the faith out of the faith just so that we end up looking like the Baha'i instead of Christianity. I think it's probably more important to start with what Christ unified us in. In other words, what if I am a believer, regardless of my secondary theologies, and you are a believer, regardless of yours, Christ has made us one by the power of what? Obviously not our secondary theology. But what is the nature of that union that we do have, that we need to recognize? And in recognizing it, maybe we would preach or speak or operate more closely to it than close to our distinctions. Now I have here at the top, Acts 2.38. It was just a, I shoved it in there because it disturbs evangelicals. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you've ever been in discussions with some of our Protestant brethren who, who dip more aggressively than we do, and they like to say, see it says repent and be baptized, I only add that merely to add confusion to your mind. Because I want you a little confused this morning. Because we want to answer the question of what is it we're looking at and what is it Peter's speaking about. And that was chapter 2. That was Pentecost. Do you repent and do you have to be baptized? Well, you said, well, I heard in our church that it's just repent. But there it says, repent and be baptized. 
So a lot of us are confused about the message we preach. There's also, there's two levels of problem, our problem with the gospel. Acts 11, which is our primary passage, Acts 11. Now the apostles and the brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Okay? Now, there's two basic problems we have with the gospel. One is, we don't know what it is. That's a bad problem. Two, we don't love other people enough to tell them. We have reasons for reluctance. The circumcision party had their own reluctant reasons. They're Gentiles, unless you fix that, unless they get circumcised and vow to obey Moses, become a Jew, they, they have no part of Christ. They had created, well, it's a third problem, basically. Not knowing what it is the gospel, we end up throwing extra things in the gospel. It's not that the circumcision party didn't believe in Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They were theologically accurate about Jesus. But they thought that when he comes down to it, you better be circumcised. You better be a Jew. What are you doing talking? I mean, that's an awkward conversation. Peter an apostle comes to town and this party, powerful enough because when you start talking about the gospel everyone knows that your damnation is on the line your eternal salvation remember, um, what was it King John oh I forget what the issue was Innocent, Pope Innocent III Maybe it was over the archbishop. This is a while back. Innocent III, medieval pope, very powerful medieval pope. King John, he's the bad guy in all the Robin Hood movies. Okay? That King John. Uh, the King John of Magna Carta. Um, well, whatever the case, I don't want to digress. The, the pope slapped interdict on England. Now... Those of you who go, yeah, I remember that. Interdict means the priest can't say the Mass, offer the Eucharist. The sacraments are not available to you in England, the whole country. The Pope said the, the priests will not. There were no other churches, folks. Your eternal life depended on you taking the Eucharist going to confession, getting penance, getting extreme unction if you're dying. Mom and dad on their deathbed at 35 because of the lifespan, they're dying of cholera or plague or something, and you call the priest and he won't come and he won't, you know, dip you and read the last rites and you're damned. Because the Pope said, so you can understand that when anybody is talking about what you believe the gospel includes, when we don't know and when we err about what that is, when we fail by preaching too little, or fail by preaching too much, or putting additives in that don't belong, we're, we're arguing or we're putting people into a very grave situation. You can see why people get very upset. The circum circumcision party was 
upset. Peter didn't agree with them. So we want to know when the church is reluctant to preach the gospel, you know, we sometimes think of some foreign country. Um, you know, Hannah Geyer just got back from Bangkok and just said that the, the idolatry was over the top. Just the, and we go, oh. would there was a ripe harvest? Would there were missionaries to go into that harvest, etc., etc.? And we live in a free country in which there isn't any idolatry proper. And uh, none of the Christians are saying anything to anybody. I know some of you are. But you know, even those of you that are, there's this just broad reluctance for something that we know is the passing from death to life distinction. We're trying to find what it is. We don't want to be, we want to be very cautious about what it is. But then we have all sorts of barriers about who I should say it to. Barriers in my love. I don't love the Gentile enough. I don't have the degree of grace that God has. That's what I mean. The circumcision party was in that situation. They did not have the degree of grace that God had. But in this, verse 4, but Peter began and explained to them in order. Colon. He's telling them a story. Now, interestingly enough, it's one of those rare times in the Bible where the previous chapter tells you the same thing about that he's just about to say. It repeats the story. You just got told it in Acts 10. It's the story of the Cornelius, the Roman centurion, with his household becoming a Christian. A Gentile, very clearly a Gentile. You know, the image of the sheep being laid down from heaven to Peter, and he gets... He goes and preaches the gospel to them, and they get saved. But you know that this moment, with the objection of the circumcision party, at the moment where the great mystery of the gospel, which is, according to Ephesians and St. Paul, God's grace to the Gentiles, that was the mystery. It wasn't a mystery that a dead Jew, raised from the dead, that wasn't a mystery. Ascended to be with the Father, that wasn't a mystery. That he was God himself, that wasn't a mystery. Or that God himself is a trinity, that's not a mystery. It's that Jesus Christ's grace was available to the Gentiles. That was the mystery hidden for ages. This is the thing, this is the thing that we're repeating the story in two chapters of Acts, once right after another, to explain to those who object to the gospel going to the Gentile how that event happened. He explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, No, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has cleansed, you must not call common. 
Now you know what the, the meaning of that is. He's about to be told to go to the Gentiles and you must not call it common. I want you to take that in the same way. That As you look at the gospel, you analyze what you're preaching to your non-Christian friends. If you're preaching anything to your non-Christian friends. Do you have additions? Are you like a, your very own circumcision party? If you don't do this, if you don't do that, whether it's you don't go to church or you don't do this, You have additions to the gospel. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ track with what you're saying? This happened three times and was drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brethren also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house, saying, Send to Joppa, and bring Simon called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. That seems pretty direct, right? You're going to find out what the message is that will save you. There are some who point to that phrase, you and all your household. We'll get to that when we get to what the message is. Okay? Um, if it were, if you donate $10,000 to the local cancer fund, you and all your household will be saved. Well, we'd say, well, $10,000, I guess, saves a whole household. But it's salvation that we're dealing with. Now conveniently, because I have a computer, lo and behold, on the left hand side is the Acts 10 message of Peter. <coughs> also because I have PageMaker and I could do things like this, I pulled out some key phrases in what he preaches so you can see, remember, Luke is writing this down. He tells you the story of what happened, the message Peter gave. He then tells what Peter describes it as and begins it by saying, this message you will hear from him will bring your salvation. So I think it would be fine for us to go back to chapter 10 and look at the message. If there is a message that will save you, you and your household, it would behoove us to look at what it is. And Peter opened his mouth, verse 34 of chapter 10, and said, Truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's a weird enough passage right there. He's been... Liberated, God has called it uncommon. If you are seeking God, God can accept you. That hadn't even crossed the Jews' mind. Why would you go talk to a Gentile anyways? Because God called it clean. I can't call it common. So the fear of the Lord... And the pursuit of righteousness 
is what makes someone acceptable to God. Not acceptable unto salvation, because obviously, if Cornelius already had been fearing the Lord and being doing acceptable, righteous things, he wouldn't need the gospel, right? If he was, he still needs to be saved. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. These are to whom the gospel goes. And even St. Paul, though he persecuted the church, he desired the law of God with his inmost being, in chapter 7 of Romans it says. But he couldn't do it. He feared God, and he wanted to do what was right. Attempted. He was blameless according to the law. But until he became a Christian, until he was saved by whatever gospel we're talking about here, he wasn't. It wasn't good enough. The acceptable means God wants the gospel to go to them. So much that he gives St. Peter a, rev a revelation of a vision from God to get him over the hump. He gives the pagan guy a revelation of an angel telling him where to send to get the guy who will tell him the message. It's important that this um, line be crossed. You know the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace. By Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. The word which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses to all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him manifest. Not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That was the message. Perhaps you noticed the parts that I centered or bolded. It's a good news of peace. The word gospel just means good news. That's what it is bringing. It brings peace. It brings it by Jesus Christ, parenthetically, he is Lord of all. There's a conclusion about Jesus Christ that has to be made. Not only that it's a good news of peace from Jesus Christ, but who is Lord. Where he got this lordship, his standing in that lordship, now he doesn't go into theology about this, it's the anointing of our God with the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So it's a good news based on this emissary of God, God himself, on the planet, a good news of peace, that which brings you reconciliation with God, that's what's coming to, that's what's coming to you in the gospel. The center of that is they put him to death and that he was raised on the third day physically.
Notice how he puts in there, we ate and drank with him. This is a very short, direct gospel message to a very ready audience. Somebody who wanted to be right with God. Cornelius gave alms constantly and prayed and and God liked that about Cornelius and he sends him the gospel. This is what he didn't know. That Jesus Christ, Lord of all, was killed and was raised. And in that death, it doesn't go into any theology about it, he is ordained of God, or by God, to be the judge of the living and the dead. That he was prophesied. And all of this combined, this story, this gospel of peace, this Lord Jesus Christ, dead, buried, raised, ascended to glory to be judge of the living and the dead, That is what you must believe. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 14 of chapter 11, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. You and all your household. Well, look at the message. Remember the $10,000? What if it were 10,000 bucks? Well, for 10,000 bucks, I can purchase salvation for my household. The problem is with this situation is not 10,000 bucks. It's everyone who believes in him. Everybody's got to have the 10,000. I don't get to, it's not like if you pay 10,000, you and your whole household it says everyone who believes in him Everyone in your household who believes in him will be saved. You and all your household will be saved by this message, which everyone must believe. I don't get to believe and make my kids saved. I don't don't care by what magic I want to extend that. The message is everyone who believes will receive forgiveness. I know there's all sorts of motivations why we want to have other mechanisms by which we can extend my salvation into my unbelieving children. You look at them, especially in a, in a medieval time where you're looking at infant mortality that's incredible, and parents are, oh my gosh, and then of course obviously it's teaching you about original sin, and, and of course they're damned if they die. People are very desperate to have their belief transfer, and Protestants do it their own ways. Even in evangelical, baptistic, people are trying to get their kid, well, my kid was in the choir, they were in youth group, they went to Awana, they got the little beads, little jewels or something from Awana. Some people really believe they can violate the gospel. They change what's in the gospel to serve their family's love interests. Remember the circumcision party? Remember your desire to have unity in the faith? Find how God makes you unified. Add nothing to it. 
If you want unity in the faith, find what saved you and would save everyone, whether a Hottentot, a Gentile, a Jew, even an Irishman, what would be the what would be the union that we'd have? And what would we be based on? As soon as I start answering other things, my church tradition, my family affections, all sorts of other things that make me want to either limit the gospel so that those kind of people are not in, or to get special absolution for parts of my love in life that I want them to be saved because of my choice. But if God has not cleansed it, I must not call it common. I must not call it clean if God has not cleansed it. That's the opposite of that verse 9. What God has cleansed you must not call common. What God has not cleansed, you must not call clean. You can't drag your little Johnny to church, confirm him, catechize him, do whatever you want to do, Sunday school it, and say, these are new additions to the gospel. This is, I'm making a churchy person. I'm making a good citizen of Christendom. Jesus Christ cleanses and he doesn't cleanse. This is the good news that will, I have this list, that will save you, that will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Brings repentance unto life, forgiveness of sins. These are things that are happening in you if the gospel is believed. Now we haven't gotten to that part where he tells you what actually happens to him. He says, he will declare to you a message, verse 14, by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So he says, just like at Pentecost, just like the Holy Spirit fell on us at Pentecost, it's falling on Cornelius and his household. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, and this is where he's in explaining to the Jews, he's explaining to them what Pentecost meant. He said, it's just like what we experienced when, at the beginning, John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now you remember Christ says that, and John says it earlier. One is, I have baptized you with water of repentance, but one is coming after me who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. It's a far greater baptism. And St. Peter is pointing to this event with Cornelius and say, you know, that's what Jesus was talking about. I've been talking to my father recently. He's writing up a kind of a tract or an essay on baptism. He's getting a little bothered by how much the circumcision party still functions, but now functions in baptism rather than circumcision. This is one of the examples he uses. We often or this is kind of one of the guides, we often think when we see the word baptism, we automatically think water baptism. Even though the baptism, the one baptism, remember one Lord, one faith, one baptism, 
The one baptism of the Christian church is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The one baptized in us by Jesus Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's the one baptism. And we automatically, after 1,500 years of Roman Catholicism, read water baptism into that passage in Acts 2 at the top of the page, repent and be baptized. Because we can't see the baptism that is central to our own faith. And because we don't see the baptism that is central to our own faith, we get people to go, okay, I want to be a Christian. We water baptize them and we front load the church with a bunch of unbelief. Not really regenerate people. The wonderful thing about this passage in Acts 11, if God gave them, verse 17, the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, the, the belief, anyone who believes, is that what it said? That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin, through his name. We received this gift when we believed. They received the same gift that when they believed. Who was I that I could withstand God? God was busy cleansing them. I should not call it common. Now listen, when they heard this, they were silenced. The circumcision party. The difficult ones. You know, the, the probably ex-Pharisees and now they're Christians and just a little bit, you know, jockey shorts and a bunch about everything and they want to make sure that nothing's left out and they're just stressing their Jewishness way too much. And they glorified God, saying, this is where unity happens. Well, you can even tell somebody who's got a misapprehension about the gospel, you can silence them on this. They have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and they were baptized. Oh no, no, they didn't sign up for church baptism. They were baptized. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance unto life. That is what they saw. But because we've replaced, we didn't understand the gospel, and some people shove water baptism in, so just required that you walk the aisle and sign the card, whatever it is, a little liturgy you want to add to your gospel. The Jews and St. Peter and everybody else was looking for the work of God in the person's life. Everyone who believes will be will be cleansed by him, but the cleansing is efficacious. It's not just a theory we hold, oh, in some sort of judicial, you know, way, I'm, my guilt is being removed from me and given to Christ. You are experiencing the change, because Peter saw it. I got the last passage here, uh, on the bottom of the right-hand side, Acts 10.44, right at the end of his dealing with Cornelius, while Peter was saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who came with Peter were amazed. They were seeing something. They were seeing a measurable change. It wasn't like, did you walk the aisle? Did you sign the card? Did you get dipped? Did you join the church? Are you singing in the choir? Uh, did you give enough money? Whatever it is. 
We can tell. Those of us who stand in Christ, who stand in the cleansed state, the forgiveness of sins, we know, you know the see it sensation, you meet somebody new and you go, you're a Christian. The Spirit is witnessing the Spirit, but you're witnessing something, you're seeing something. For them, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. So you saying, okay, heaven, speaking in tongues, huh? Because there are some people who believe that unless you, when you get saved, you speak in tongues, or when you're baptized with water, you come up out of the water speaking in tongues. I don't know where you're at on these things. I'm not a cessationist. I don't believe the gifts are over. I just don't believe everyone who thinks they have them has them. Um, But I also know what the apostle teaches, that not all believers speak in tongues. And since not all believers speak in tongues, that's what they were doing. But the key element of it was they were extolling God. The tongues was something that they did. If someone spoke in tongues today, having believed the gospel, and it was extolling God, I would hope that I would recognize not the magic of the necessary speaking in tongues, but because we are told that that's not necessary in everybody, every Christian's life. What is necessary is that they be cleansed. We may not call common what God has cleansed. If they are not cleansed, they're still common. And no, I don't have unity with them. I, ought, I don't care if they believe every inch of my theology, which is right. If they believe everything that I said and donated to my ministry, both in the church and at the big house, this is getting hard to resist. This is the kind of conversion we like to see. But no. If they're not cleansed, I don't have any unity with them. The unity of that agreement, which so many people think is the unity of the faith, get everybody on the same page. You have to agree with this message, yes, but because that is the message by which God will cleanse you if you believe it. If they don't get cleansed, if their faith did not measure it out before God to be acceptable. They have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us Christians. That is the baptism that holds us together. And we're getting lazy about waiting because we're so desperate to win this fight against the Muslims because, dear Jesus, if we don't have more Christians than Muslims, Jesus loses. Jesus already won. It could be 12 Christians at the end of the age, and Jesus still won. God is sovereign. He judges all things. The living and the dead, for everything I've done, if there are 12 cleansed believers at the end, God bless it. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. We're not desperate. We want to, we, we, we want to broaden the number of people. We, we want to have it easier to get in. Somebody was telling me about some school that they 
kind of noticed that more and more kids were getting higher and higher GPAs, and they didn't think that the level of intelligence was actually increasing. But it's called great inflation. <coughs> we start to feature things of our gospel as if it were easy <coughs> for us to make that common person cleansed and without having cleansed them. When our kids became Christians, when they claimed to have become Christians, Leslie and I would go, well, we'll see. We didn't go to say that to them. We didn't go, yeah, don't trust you, you little bastard. <laughs> we wanted to be sure that the Holy Spirit had changed them. Repentance, that's what that gets even the circumcision party on board. God has granted them repentance unto life. They, the stress on the word life, we know they repented, they saw the life. That's what we want to see in the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not going around town looking for churches that agree with the same gospel. That's a good beginning point. They, they preach the gospel. You're looking for people who have been cleansed by said gospel because I actually have a unity with them. I am in the body of Christ, metaphysically, with them. The church invisible. That's who I'm obliged to have fellowship with. And the more they can think about the cleansing power of the gospel, the more, and the more I do, I know the point of my unity. They've received forgiveness. And when you've received forgiveness, when you start to stress this kind of point of unity, our powers of extolling God, our willingness to declare this gospel is higher. One thing that we find out, you say, well, what about the water baptism? What if that for Acts 2 passage right at the top actually was about water baptism? I could tie that in with Acts 11. Or excuse me, Acts 10. Baptize them in the name of the Lord Jesus. It says up there, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus. The thing is that they're thinking, if that were water baptism, they think, because they're thinking in a post-Catholic way, not in a Christian way, that God is doing something, you, the church is working its magic on you in baptism. Water baptism. That somehow the holy water or the rite to the, that the priest or the pastor is giving, that somehow, da -da -da, whatever happens, happens to you because baptism is done to you. No, you do baptism. It is what you do. It's like your repentance. You repent and you get baptized for forgiveness of sins. That's what I offer. It's my prayer. Peter 3.21 says, right there at the bottom, near the bottom, baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience. 
Someone could use water baptism as part of their prayer. It is not a washing that happens to you, either for dirt or for sin. It is your appeal to God. It's your statement of your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It can be all sorts of things. But it is not baptism happening to you from the church, cleansing you. It's you asking God or showing God or offering God your belief, your appeal, your desire for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, this is the same guy throughout all of this, back at Pentecost and then in Acts 10 and Acts 11, he learns all this, that the baptism that saves, the baptism that cleanses, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You have control, your church has control over water baptism. It has all sorts of potential meanings, but it's not the baptism that joins us. If someone comes to me and says, can I take communion in your church? I'm not, I believe the gospel, but I haven't been baptized. I say, sure. Yes, you have. Of course. If you've come to the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, if you've passed from death to life, if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I am your brother. The fact that you haven't done the ritual yet, that's an issue of obedience. You need to work, sort that out. But that's not the baptism that allows you to be in communion with me. The one baptism is the one Christ offered, not the one John offered. You want to operate in your life just like the warning God gives Peter. You better not call common what I've cleansed. You ought to not yourself. You know, looking at yourself. And have I passed from death to life? Why don't we just function in the unity that God has given us, rather than trying to set something up or waiting for some church to approve you? If Jesus Christ has wonderfully changed you, extol God. Do not call yourself common. And be in fellowship with those who are similarly cleansed. Whether they're Baptists or Presbyterians or Anglicans or Lutherans. If they've passed from death to life, and you've passed from death to life, don't call any of them common. But don't lower the passing grade also. Don't say, I believe the right things, therefore I must be cleansed. Now, if you were cleansed, Look at your forgiveness. Do you, do you remember that forgiveness? You know the guilt you had. It was objective guilt. Not just emotional guilt. You were objectively guilty. You were dirty. You know the difference when you've confessed a sin, how that's lifted off of you. You know the rejoicing that goes on. You know that you extol God. You said, no, no, I don't. Well, then you need to talk to somebody. <laughs> Somebody here who has passed from death to life. This is where our focus should be at the unity of the saints. This should be our focus in our relationship with the world. We should be finding those people that are seeking God and declaring to them repentance unto life. It's been granted to them. But we have to keep it that. 
Let's not become the circumcision party. Let's not become at odds with each other when Jesus Christ has cleansed us and made us one. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for the work of your Son on the cross and his power over a death and his resurrection and that is coming to judge the living and the dead on some future day. And Lord, we're grateful that we have believed. And we're grateful that you have cleansed us. We have passed from death to life. We've been baptized in your Holy Spirit. We've received your forgiveness. And Lord, help us understand this, that our extolling of your Son and his gospel would be to great benefit in the non-Christians we know. And it would also help the saints be more unified. Thank you. In your son's name. Amen.